Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, our first reading is from Isaiah 29, and we are reading from verses 9 to 21. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk but not from wine. Stagger but not from beer. The Lord has brought you over brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this please, they will answer. I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound you, astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn these things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed to say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the, potter, can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In a very short time, will, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who, with a word, make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. And the second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and we're reading through to chapter 2, verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the, low, of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. 
I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not, be, might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Thanks, Lauren. Please uh, keep that part of God's Word open, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through to 2, 5. That would be really, that'd be really good. Um, yeah, uh, happy Father's Day to all those who are fathers here today. I'm sort of saying it to myself, actually. Um, but I've uh, got my Father's Day socks on. Um, just They were given to me yesterday, so, you know, there you go. There you go. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I, I want to say happy birthday, um, not happy birthday, happy Father's Day, but also... Um, I'm always drawn to Romans 12 on days like today where as God's people we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're called to mourn with those who mourn. Um, Father's Day isn't a happy day for absolutely everyone. Um, It can be a really hard day for some. It it is a day where we ought to rejoice and give thanks to God for fathers and the role they have in our lives and in the world. Um, But for a number of us, you know, that may not be... The father you had may not be the father you thought you would have and maybe you're here today as well and you would love to be a father as well and that for you is something that's not quite happening yet and that's a challenge so just think it's good for us to remember that on a daylight today we rejoice with those who rejoice we mourn with those who mourn Um, as we come to god's word uh, let's pray shall we Uh, ask god to help us today heavenly father we thank you and praise you for your word and we thank you that we have it in front of us today we thank you for the freedom we have in this city and in this country to to open your word and to meet freely together father help us to not take that for granted Uh, father we pray with thanks for this day where we recognize the role that our father our fathers play in our world Uh, and it is a significant one lord Uh, so we rejoice with those who rejoice we thank you for good dads We also, Father, mourn with those who mourn, who today it's not such a happy day. Father, you are the great Father. You are a good, good Father. And so may we all seek to draw near to you, whether we feel like a good Father or not. Help us to draw from your strength and your example. And Father, help us to attend to your word today, set our affections on Christ afresh. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's, uh, it's struck me over the recent years that I've become somewhat of a conversation stopper. Uh, that's become my new sort of role or ability. And I actually, I'm a bit disappointed with it, actually, to be honest. Um, in my former life, um, I was a physiotherapist. Um, and, uh, you know, and I loved it. I, lo- I really enjoyed being a physio, loved the work, loved, you know, creating pain for people, you know, that sort of stuff. It was really good. I'm a pain in different ways now. But anyway, um, but physio was one of those professions, right, where, um, you know, if I was out for dinner with people and you're at the pub having a meal and you're having banter and then inevitably the conversation gets to, so what do you do for work? And I say, oh, I'm a physiotherapist. And two things happen. Other people go, oh, yeah. I've got a great physiotherapist, right? I've been seeing this physio for years and she's amazing. And every time I have an injury, she gets me back on the field and it's just wonderful. You know, I love my physio. Alternatively, people go, oh yeah, my neck's a bit sore, actually. Do you reckon you could have a little tinker with it? Um, That's what happens. Um, Now it's a bit different. I go out for dinner, right? And I'm at the pub and I'm having banter with people and then inevitably it gets to, so what do you do? 
and I say, I'm a pastor of a church. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And you should see the horror on people's faces, right, when I say that. I've reduced the most socially able and intelligent men and women to panic, right, at the dinner table. It's incredible. Because people, you see this, like, panic flicker on people's faces, like, what do I say now? Like, what's the follow-up to that? Like, you know, it's crazy. Um, you know, this is the classic one. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and you know what? Like, you know the word interesting, right, is the most stretchable word in the English language, right? It can mean absolutely anything. Um, People don't feel comfortable talking to a pastor or a minister or if you're an old person, a vicar. You know, people don't like that. Um, opposed to talking to a physiotherapist. The, 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 the connection points are really kind of different. And you come to a passage like we just had read, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, and of course the Apostle, the Apostle Paul would say, well, that, that's the case, right? Because the message of Christianity is unsettling. It's a bit confronting, and if you're a Christian or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, there is something about the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity that is a little bit unsettling. You know, that in order to get to heaven, you have to trust in a man who died 2,000 years ago on a cross, who died an ugly criminal's death. If you're a Christian, right, you'll be familiar with that. We've sung about it already this morning a couple of times. Even our kids have. When you stop and think about it, that is pretty odd, Right? That's what we have to trust in, a crucified guy on a cross 2,000 years ago. Paul would say, it's actually foolishness. And if you're a Christian, I imagine you've found yourself in a situation here or there where someone's asked you, oh, right, so you're a Christian, what does that mean? And you start explaining it, right? You start saying, well, I'm a sinner and I deserve God's judgment, but Jesus died in my place 2,000 years ago for my forgiveness. And there's something in you that thinks how could anyone take me seriously right now? And the person you're talking to, maybe doesn't say this, but they're sort of saying, you've got a PhD and you believe in that? Or you got through school and you believe in that? Seriously. I don't think it's just me, right, who feels like that at times. Anyone else? Paul would say, don't be surprised. Because when you survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... We count our gain, our riches as loss because the cross pours contempt on all our pride. God has designed his message of salvation, the way you can be rescued for redemption, rescued from hell for heaven forever. If I can put it in these terms, a bit crudely, maybe irreverently, it's a bit ridiculous, this message of salvation. Now, if you're joining us this week and you weren't here for the last two weeks, why not? I mean, just put it in your diary, 10 a.m., repeat, Sunday. Like, you know, no, I'm just joking. Um, two weeks ago, we started our work through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and it's this book written by the Apostle Paul around the year 54, 55 AD to a bunch of young Christians living in this cosmopolitan city um, near Athens in the first century. Um, it was an exciting city, an economically flourishing city. It was where everyone wanted to be. I've been saying, you know, if you're, a, you know, where Rhiannon, you know, she's about to graduate from, you know, a new grad in engineering, that's where she'd go, 
right? You want to be in Corinth because that's where it's all kind of happening. And I've said over the last couple of weeks, it's a successful city. People want to be there. It's a sex-obsessed city. Anything goes in Corinth. And it was a spiritual city. You know, everyone was kind of in touch with their karma and everything. You know, everything just kind of went. The reality was that Paul writes to this church, right, which was being squeezed into the mould of the culture around it rather than being squeezed into the shape of Christ. One commentator says there was a church at Corinth, but there was a lot of Corinth in the church too. Churches being squeezed into the shape of the world rather than being shaped by their relationship with God the Father and their relationship with Christ the Son, that's the issue. As we go through the book of 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 through to 4 deal with all these divisions that are creeping up in the church, these gangs and cliques and people wanting to follow these sort of cool leaders with these different personalities and styles. Chapters 5 through 7 mainly deals with sort of sexual behaviour. Chapters 8 through to 10 kind of deal with how the Corinthians were kind of, you know, trumping their own personal rights rather than showing love to each other. Um, chapters 11 through 14, all about God's, the gifts that God's given to the church and how they're to be used for the upbuilding of others and in the gathering. Chapter 15 is all about the game-changing resurrection, how Jesus' resurrection from the grave changes everything, both now and forever. The section we're in, this section tonight, so this morning, um, is, one, is 1 to 4, which is all about the leaders. You see, divisions had become a real thing. As the members of this local church in Corinth have begun to cling to different leaders, their personalities and their styles, particularly how good they were at speaking. Uh, public speaking in Corinth was a big deal, right? Weekend entertainment would be watching, I don't know, like Socrates debate Heracles rather than binge watching Parks and Rec, right? Online or whatever you're into right now. And the love of speakers was not based on what they said, it was actually based on how they said things, right? How poetic and persuasive and impressive and compelling they were. Now, it's different for us. Like, I don't think we really value public speaking that much anymore, at least not like these guys did. But let me give you just one a little example to give you an idea of what it was maybe like, right? Um, when I was at school, which wasn't very long ago, no, it was a while ago, um, I was part of the debating team. Anyone else part of the debating team? Yeah, good on you guys. We'll meet together and console each other. No, I was part of the debating team. I was also into sport. I wasn't that, you know, like I wasn't that kid. But um, one year we had a very strong team. I was, I was connected with two very impressive young girls in my class. I was by far and away the weakest link, right? Um, we entered this inter kind of school debating competition and we got all the way to the final. Like it was incredible, right? And the debate in the final was this, Australia should become a republic because it will financially advantage us as a country. And I'm like, I'm in year 11, and I'm like, I don't even understand what the topic was, right? But anyway, um, we, were, we were opposing, right? We were opposing the, the side. And uh, as the debate went on, it was clear that we were going down, right? We, it was not a good day for us, and uh, we weren't going to win. And then Heidi, oh, Heidi, she was cracking Heidi stood up and she closed our argument wonderfully. She said this, this is basically what she said. The other team has made some very strong arguments about the economy 
and how that will benefit um, you know, our country becoming a republic. But let me quote to you from McAllister's PhD on the matter of economies of overseas territories. She quoted all these amazing stats, right, showing how disastrous it would be to us as a nation economically. And we won. So we carried out, the three of us, this massive trophy. It was extraordinary, right? Afterwards, I went up to Heidi and I said, Heidi, what was that? I said, well, I've never heard about McAllister when we were preparing for this debate. Well, where did that come from? She goes, well, she said, it's a bit like the Woman's Weekly. I just made it up. <laughs> it was nonsense. That's Corinthian debating, right? That's debating. Who cares about whether it's true or not? Who cares about the content? If it's good, does it win? Is it compelling? Is it persuasive? Bam. That's what was going on in Corinth. Now, we need to understand that in order to understand what Paul is kind of writing against when we, we come to this. Some people that had arrived in Corinth, they'd heard the Christian message, but they'd said, what Paul told you is all right, but I think we need to pimp up the message a bit. Let's make it a bit more sexy. Because the message of a man dying for them like 20 years ago on a cross, that's not going to persuade anybody. We need to give the message a bit more glitz, a bit more bling. And the outcome in chapter 1 to 4 is division. And that's something you can find all over this city, right? You can't preach that Jesus died for your sins. You can't preach that Jesus took the wrath of God upon the cross. You can't preach that there are only two ways to live. People won't accept that. You have to tell them that, you know, come to Jesus. He'll make your life better. Jesus will make you a nicer person. Jesus will give you purpose and meaning in life. Come to Jesus. You'll be wealthier and healthier. Make the message sexy and attractive. I mean, if people are going to become Christians, we've got to do that. And Paul is saying, no, don't do that. At 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I've got three points today. You're going flipping out. That was a long introduction. Um, I've got three points today that we're going to look at. Um, a foolish message, a foolish people, and a foolish preacher. Paul really wants us to be reminded that the cross is at the centre of all things and we need to view everything in life through the lens of the cross. A foolish message, a foolish people, a foolish preacher. First, come with me to a foolish message. Have a look with me at verse 18 of chapter 1. For the message of the cross, Paul writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The first challenge we face as we look at these verses is that for many of us, I reckon, the cross has become so familiar that it's become a little bit dulled in our lives. At least I speak personally. You know, when you, you know, you, I don't, we don't, not many of us use money anymore, like, you know, like actual physical money. But you know, when you come across like a brand new minted dollar coin and it just stands out amidst all the other sort of more dulled coins, you just notice it. It's like, wow, that must be worth more than a dollar, you know, like, but over time it kind of becomes dulled, it loses its sheen, no longer sparkles. You see, crucifixion, right, was horrific. 
horrible. It was a terrible, ghastly way to die. It was the supreme penalty reserved for rebels and for slaves. It was totally shameful. No Roman citizen would be crucified without the express permission of the local emperor. It was always carried out beyond the city walls where crosses, rows and rows and rows of crosses offered rich pickings for birds and for dogs and for wolves. Crucifixion was considered so disgusting you would never talk about it in polite company. Cicero famously commented, he said this, the very word cross should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, from his ears. Tom Holland, a really excellent historian, not a follower of Jesus, notes that there are very few detailed descriptions of crucifixion that survive in ancient literature because no one wanted to write about it, talk about it. But there's one exception. Well, actually, there's four exceptions. Four detailed accounts have come down to us of one man's crucifixion. Accounts of what in the Greek was called the euhangelion, the good news, the gospel. Good news about a crucifixion would have sounded stupid, even like a sick joke in the first century. But that was the message that God sent the Apostle Paul to preach. And Paul could no more think about Christianity without the cross than we, you and I, could think about Mozart without music or I could think about Richmond without Dusty, Dustin Martin. In verse 18, Paul calls the gospel the message of the cross. Writing to the church of Corinth in AD 54, 55, Paul drags the Corinthian believers back to the cross, back to Calvary. He wants to see, help, to see, help them see everything through the lens of the cross, and he needs them to do it. See, Corinthians was a, Corinthian, a Corinth, uh, Corinth sorry, was a very wealthy, sophisticated city. It was proud of its economic sort of ability, its reputation as a successful and powerful place. A message stamped with a crucified saviour wasn't the message that sophisticated Corinth wanted. The local church at Corinth had reconstructed its spirituality without the embarrassment of the cross. You can hear them saying, like, oh, we're Corinthians. The message of the cross isn't going to fly here, Paul, you know. I mean, we're very clever people. We're, we're, we have clever ideas. And you want, to, you want to wheel out a cross? I'm writing last year in his book, Outgrowing God, Richard Dawkins, the patron saint of new atheism, God's favourite atheist, concluded, he wrote this, the doctrine of the atonement, which Christians take very seriously indeed, is so deeply, deeply nasty that it deserves to be savagely ridiculed. The thing I would say to Richard is, well, ridiculing the cross is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. Verse 18 tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We don't naturally like the message of the cross. Its implication is deeply offensive. 20th century German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the cross is God's truth about us written in blood across a wooden beam. It tells us that we are not wise enough to know him. We're not strong enough to save ourselves. The cross closes off all other options. It declares that all other ways of salvation don't work. 
If there were any other way we could be saved than through the death of Christ on the cross, then the cross of Christ wouldn't be needed. But at the cross, God took our sin on himself and suffered his own divine judgment in our place. See, the cross divides the human race. Ultimately, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are perishing, according to verse 18, or those who are being saved. Those who find the cross foolishness and those who know it is God's power to forgive them and rescue them from his wrath. You know what? In eternity, it won't matter if you were educated or not. It won't matter if you were a big earner or on the minimum wage. Justice and righteousness in our society are important, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to eternity, the thing, the only thing that will matter is whether the cross was foolishness to you or the life-changing power of God. I don't know, as you hear this today, maybe you've, you've wandered away from the Christian faith. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this. How can you know God? How can you get right with him? The only way this passage says, the only way Paul says, is through trusting in Jesus' death on the cross in your place. The cross, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. A crucified Messiah didn't meet their expectations, verse 22 it was utter foolishness to the Greeks, you know, to think that a God who crucified himself to forgive his enemies, it did not fit with their categories, verse 24. But to those whom God has called, Paul writes, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God. God dictates the terms. And I know it sounds foolish. The cross has always and always will sound foolish. Please, brothers and sisters, don't let that move you. Don't let that move us as a church. The message of the cross is God's power of salvation. We want to persuade others, right? Paul did that again and again and again. We want to reason and think hard and use our minds, but we do that all only to present the cross to people. We do this because as Paul concludes in verse 25, the cross in all of its foolishness and all of its weakness does what human wisdom and power cannot do. Yes, it was an ugly and brutal way to die. It's repulsive and foolish and so unsophisticated until the moment we receive it as God's wisdom and power for us. As one of the old hymns puts it by Isaac Watts, until it becomes the wondrous cross. Let me read some words. We're going to sing this in a little while. And if God is calling you to himself today, maybe you can make these words your own. Isaac Watts says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were all the realms of nature mine that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. A foolish message. Secondly, then, a foolish people, verse 26 through to 31. 
About 200 years ago, during the great revivals of the 18th century in uh, UK and, and Europe, where thousands and thousands of ordinary people were turning to Christ, there was a woman named the Countess of Huntingdon, who was a newly converted follower of Jesus, and she said that she was saved by the letter M. She was saved by the letter M, and you're going, well, what's she on about, right? But it was the difference in verse 26, right, between not any of noble birth versus not many of noble birth. We've looked at God's foolish message, verse 18 to 25, verses 26 to 31. Paul turns to the gospel's foolish people, the foolish followers of Christ. He wants the Corinthians to see themselves through the lens of the cross. Um, Again, Corinth was this strategic place. Its location made the city great, you know, great economic sort of importance. Culturally, Corinth saw itself as sophisticated and highly intellectual. Um, Tourists, right, would flock to the city of Corinth every two years for the famous Isthmian Games, second only to that of the Olympics. Um, In business and trade and economics and power, they had amazing status. They were a driven and competitive people. It's no surprise, right, that then that sort of driven, competitive nature kind of moved itself into the local church. Again, you can hear the church saying, oh, we're the church at Corinth. We are the strategic ones. Look at our location. You know, true enough, it was a great mission field, but Paul challenges the iceberg of pride that's just floating beneath the surface. Have a look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It's a pretty powerful message. When I read this, I'm like, that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm quite, a, quite intelligent. I mean, none of us likes to be thought as foolish or unwise or weak, do we? That's not, you know. We're conditioned, right, to to hide our weakness and present our best. We want people to admire us. That's the wisdom of the world, whether you're in Corinth or whether you're in Adelaide. But the cross tells us that we're not that wise, that we couldn't work out who God is. We had to be told. The cross tells us that we're not strong. We couldn't save ourselves. We need to be rescued. There's no place for pride. Oh, here was an, an, this was an influential church in Corinth, a young church. There were some at this church who were influential and, you know, quite, you know, up and coming. Crispus, he was the former leader of the, of the synagogue. Erastus, he was a leading civil servant. But by and large, the, the church at Corinth was made up of men and women from very humble backgrounds. It's always been like that. By the large and successful and influential in the world's eyes, find humbling the message of the cross. They find it hard to accept. It's hard to accept that your privilege counts for nothing at the cross. It's challenging to hear that a successful career is irrelevant. The rich young man found it hard to put Jesus before his riches. The cross levels us. 
As Billy Graham said, I shared this, I think, last week, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Perhaps that's why at Philippi, right, Paul was happy to accept support from the Christians there, but in Corinth, he insisted on earning his living as a tent maker to the embarrassment of some at Corinth who perhaps valued their professional status a little bit too much. What would Paul write to City Light Church North Adelaide? I mean, many of us here, right, will be considered wise in the world's eyes. By God's grace, some in City Light, our family of churches, have influence in public and professional life. And whatever financial circumstances and challenges we're facing right now, by almost every measure, we are rich. All the more reason that I believe Paul would tell us to see ourselves afresh through the lens of the cross. Do you remember that we brought nothing to our salvation? As Paul writes in verse 30, it is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. When I was at university here in Adelaide, um, I spent a year as part of the Adelaide University Rowing Club. thought, here I am, going to give it a crack. You know, I thought I could be a great rower. And I remember sort of joining that. 1998 was my, my year. Um, and uh, we entered this series of races. And there was another crew in our category from another college in Adelaide. And um, we never saw them out training. We never saw them practice ever. Right? And then this series of races started. And in their crew, it was a crew of eight, in their crew they had two... German Olympic rowers on their team. And day after day after day, right, this team, just these two German guys just powered this boat up and down the river. And by the end of the week, they'd won everything, right? Absolutely everything. And they got to hang the oar on the wall of the club rooms. And we're just like, flipping heck, this is ridiculous. The other six rowers in their team did pretty much nothing at all. But they basically probably slowed the boat down, if anything, I reckon. Um, this other six crew members had nothing to boast about at all, right? Someone else did all the work. They get the prize. And the cross reminds us that we couldn't earn our forgiveness. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him that you are saved and have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Whatever our background, whatever our background, left to ourselves, we're guilty, we're foolish, we're sinful and we're enslaved. But in Christ, we are forgiven, given God's wisdom, declared right, forgiven, made holy, and we are free for eternity. No wonder in verse 31, Paul quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9, Let not the wise boast about their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. The cross is God's foolish message. Christians, we are God's foolish message. The gospel's foolish believers. And thirdly and finally, let's look at a foolish prayer.
preacher. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. I said earlier, if you wanted a good night out in Corinth in the year AD 55, you wouldn't go to a pub, you wouldn't watch Parks and Rec, you wouldn't go to the cinema, you'd go and hear prominent public speakers. You'd see presentations of people, and presentation was everything. I guess if they'd had a church Instagram page, it would have had included the best-looking Christians in the church with bleached white teeth, perfect skin, highly toned bodies. That's why I'm up the front. No. Um, (laughs) Their outreach to the rest of Corinth would have been fronted by Christians with good looks, the good looks of models, the intellects of genius and the persuasive skills of spin doctors. Enter Paul. Enter Paul. A bit of an embarrassment to the Corinthians. He didn't have the presence that was so valued by the society. I imagine that if Paul walked into a room in Corinth, hardly anyone would notice. The Corinthian church probably wished that Paul did display a bit more of the impressive public speaking qualities to boost their status in the the city, to, to lift the profile of the church a little bit. But all that thinking was why Paul deliberately announced such worldly wisdom. He would have known how to use rhetoric. He would have known all about these sort of skills, but he deliberately said no. You see, when you understand that you cannot know God through the wisdom of the world, but only through the folly of the cross, then you do everything you can to kind of scrub yourself clean of all that worldly wisdom because it corrupts the gospel. That's why Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. The last thing Paul wanted to do was be another city centre celebrity speaker. No, verse 2, he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Of course, Paul would have spoken about other things. But the cross shaped everything he spoke about. The cross was the lens through which Paul viewed the world. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that presentation is unimportant. We want to do all that we can do, as we possibly can, you know, to, to present the gospel with clarity. It's no credit to the Lord, right, to be sloppy or thoughtless in the way we present the gospel. But it's very easy to let the how we present the gospel overshadow what we're presenting. Whether it's quietly ignoring the commands of Scripture that jar with our culture, or manipulating emotions through clever use of music and lighting. I have been joking lately about how it would just make everything much more dramatic around here if we had a smoke machine. You know, just sort of, you know, we just, I walk out, you know, and this smoke just billows. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, no, we're not going to do that, by the way. Um, It's very, it's no credit to the gospel to be sloppy and thoughtless. It's very easy to let how we present the gospel overshadow what we're presenting. Paul would say appealing to worldly wisdom in any way means we're actually leaving behind the foolish message of the cross. God's powerful for salvation. Paul highlights the the danger of that in verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
You see, if people responded to human techniques, you'd have to question whether the conversion was genuine at all. Paul's preaching did have power to change lives, but it was the power of the cross. Clearly, carefully explained and personally applied by the Holy Spirit. God's foolish message, the gospel's foolish people, Paul's foolish preaching. Brothers and sisters at North, true spirituality centres on the cross. It saves us and it shapes us. The cross must transform the way we look at everything, everything in life. It's only through the cross that life really begins to make sense, where things come into sharp focus through the cross with a sharpness we perhaps hadn't seen before. As I finish, let me close with words we're about to sing, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Isaac Watts again. This is what the cross does to us. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for your word, this reminder today that it's in the foolish cross that we find salvation. It's through hearing this foolish message that we are saved. And Father, we recognise that we, as your people, we bring nothing to our salvation. The, the ground is level. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. So Father, please would you remove pride from us Father, where we're tempted to add a bit of bling to the gospel, where we feel like the cross and the the message of, of Christianity and the gospel is not enough, Father, help us to stand firm. And Father, help us as individual followers of you, but also here as a family at North, help us to see everything in our lives together and individually through the lens of the cross for our good, for the salvation of those around us, and for your glory. Uh, So, Father, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.